Welcome to a special Tuesday edition of BioCentury this week. I'm Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On this week's pod, Steve Austin will discuss recently confirmed Rob Califf's top priorities for his second stint as FDA Commissioner, and the biotech sector continues to weather its bear market. So late-stage investors are turning to small-cap biotechs and early-stage venture opportunities as crossover investors' activity declines. And Lauren Martz details how Amgen has been one of the more steady large-cap biotechs in recent years, but questions may linger around whether its pipeline supports continued long-term growth. And in our emerging company spotlights, Atlas-backed Third Harmonic and Splice Bio, a SIOS portfolio company that last week raised Spain's largest-ever Series A round. But first, a word from our sponsor this week. Jado Capital is a global leading investment company with a patient-benefit-driven approach that finances and accelerates the development and growth of groundbreaking medical innovation. Jado supports entrepreneurs through its expert, integrated, multi-talented team and through significant capital. For more information, please visit www.jado.life or follow on Twitter at Jado underscore life or on LinkedIn. First up, after what is about as dramatic a vote as you can expect to have from a Senate confirmation hearing, Rob Califf was finally confirmed as FDA commissioner. So Steve, can you tell us a bit more about what's top of mind for Califf this time around? So he sent a memo to all FDA staff, which was released publicly. The most interesting thing to me was his commitment to communicate proactively last time when he was commissioner during the Obama administration, he took a very restrained and kind of traditional view to communications. Later, he saw what Scott Gottlieb did as commissioner, and I think that he wants to emulate that to some extent, putting his own stamp on it. He wrote that he's going to do everything possible to strengthen FDA Science Foundation and its scientists and its other health professionals. And then he said, quote, one important aspect of this involves countering misinformation about science. He also said that a purely reactive mode is not appropriate, especially in the new era of social media. Caleb also announced that Janet Woodcock is going to remain as principal deputy commissioner. I've written about this before. She's working on an initiative to revamp the agency's IT infrastructure and to change its organization to make it more productive, to squeeze more out of the money that it's got. Caleb's got a full plate. He's got a lot of other things on his plate. He made a commitment to Senator Wyden to take steps to improve the accelerated approval process, including by holding companies accountable for collecting post-market evidence to confirm clinical benefits. I wouldn't be surprised to see FDA issue a policy that involves imposing financial penalties for egregious failures to comply with post-market commitments. And of course, he's got a lot of pandemic work to do including figuring out how and when to transition FDA's operations back to something resembling pre-pandemic norms and determining which flexibilities and changes that were introduced in response to the pandemic to retain. I think there's a bigger picture that's really important, and, and it's very good that he has talked about the need to communicate proactively because I think that there's a danger, and we saw it in the close confirmation vote, that Dr. Califf and FDA could become mired in the bigger controversies about science and, well, and truth that are going to be part of the Washington environment, part of the political environment 
in the run-up to the midterm elections. And I think after the elections, there's likely to be a focus on trying to question everything having to do with public health and science. It's going to get ugly. And I think it's going to be really important for FDA, for the companies that it regulates, for the public that relies on it, if the agency can get ahead of that and stay out of it. Steve, you know, I think that's that's clearly true. I don't think that recently, at least, there's been an FDA commissioner who ever had to sort of prioritize that in the way that this one does. I mean, the moment in the country is as it is. We also know that the other public health agencies have either come under fire or been hotbeds of controversy, CDC and CMS. Do you get any sense that Calif sees a need for partnering with them, sees a need for a unified message from those public health agencies? Is it just up to Calif to fix this? I mean, obviously, actually, also, sorry, NIH leader will also change, but is it Calif's job alone to do this, or do you think he has partners in this? I think that he would be much better off to keep an arm's length distance from other public health agencies for a few reasons. I think that FDA's position, its roles are distinct from the other agencies. And I also think that FDA needs to do everything it can to persuade the public that it's a science-based independent agency that isn't being influenced by the politics or by financial considerations. Basically that it's acting on behalf of American patients. And I think that the best way to do that is for the agency to retain independence and distance from the other agencies. There's little to gain for Caleb or FDA to try to, to be closer to, to the other agencies. It's not that their missions are distinct. And quite frankly, the political considerations are different. The conservative Republicans have made it clear that they're going to go after Fauci and NIH with a vengeance if they win in the midterms. And I don't think that there's anything that Dr. Caleb or FDA could do to persuade them not to do that. His best bet is going to be to try to keep FDA out of that as much as he can. There's also a number of milestones that are coming up that FDA and Rob Caleb are going to be involved in and they're going to affect the public perceptions of FDA. CMS's decision on adjunct their final decision, which is due the second week of April, will reflect on FDA, especially if it's perceived as CMS rejecting FDA's scientific decision on Adjuhelm. There are a number of ongoing investigations of the Adjuhelm approval from the Office of the Inspector General at HHS, from Congress, from the FTC, and all of those might also impact public perceptions of FDA and I think probably force Dr. Califf to make some changes, policy changes, organizational changes, and perhaps personnel changes, depending on the outcomes of those investigations. Great. Well, thanks, Steve. Shifting gears here, all of this is coming as biotech continues to, I guess maybe the best word to use is languish in one of its uh, worst bear markets that we've seen. I actually had the chance to speak with several late stage investors to continue our coverage of the bear markets about how they are positioning themselves and looking at the markets, especially in light of the fact that the crossover deals that they were largely participating in are not really happening. Maybe should come as little surprise to people that the poor performance we've seen on the markets and the poor performance of IPOs has led to a huge slowdown in crossover rounds that we've seen recently. 
We did an analysis of BioCentury's BCIQ data, and that showed crossover rounds fell 70% since the first quarter of 21, which was their peak, through to the fourth quarter of last year. So really without the ability to allocate to these sorts of deals, where these types of late stage investors are looking now is really to either go later into small cap biotechs on the public markets where the valuations are much more attractive. We know lots of them were saying that they feel that there's a lot of undervalued opportunities around out there since pretty much everything across the board has been hit, or they're going earlier into series A rounds. Stephen, I mean, we've talked about this, I think a bit before, certainly offline we have. VCs and so on raised record amount of money in the last few years, and that money still needs to be spent invested, I should say, not spent. But that money still needs to go somewhere. They obviously have the choice of more money for fewer companies or a certain amount of money over more companies. Are you sort of seeing any changes in their way of thinking about dispersing those funds? Yeah, well, you're right. A lot of these funds, I mean, it depends on the structure of the fund, but you know, a lot of these funds are structured as 10-year horizon where they've got a three to four, maybe five-year investment window. And so yeah, they can't just sit on the cash. You're right. It needs to be allocated somewhere. And so that's where, you know, some of these players that were doing primarily B and C rounds, now some of them saying, well, we can we can shift that and we can look to do pipes or do other opportunity structured financings in the public markets. Some of them are just spending that capital on the open market just to build positions, frankly, because with a market like this, I think as we saw, I mean, the most recent example would be March of 2020, where it was down like 40% and then it flipped and was up like 40% within several months. And so some of them are feeling like they need to act very fast. And if they have the structure to be able to do it, some of them are just trying to buy positions on the open markets. But you're right, in terms of allocation, they were also pointing to the fact that they may just have to go earlier because if you get into seed and series A rounds, typically those are a lot less volatile when it comes to valuations. They're obviously a lot further away from the market. And so you can kind of position your portfolio to be a bit more resilient to the impact of the capital markets. But the question that then has raised, and I think that we'll have to keep an eye on this going forward, is that, as you said, the traditional early stage VCs, they've all raised record funds too. And they're still going along, building new companies, financing new companies at the normal expected pace. So if you have more of this capital dipping into that early stage space, you could have the situation where you just have more competition. There's more people trying to get in these deals and could actually see valuations start to creep up. And so you might have this sort of dichotomy of where you've got rising early stage valuations when you have falling public market valuations. Then one last question from me, at least, Stephen. I mean, what everybody wants to know is when's it going to hit the bottom? What are you hearing? What should we all be thinking? That's a good question. And it's one that I ask everyone when I speak to them. And I'd say 95% of the time, the answer is they have no idea. It's difficult. No one's feeling comfortable yet to call the bottom. Although I had one person that said, I think it was February 4th, they were calling that as the bottom. I'm not going to disclose who that is at this point because I don't want to get them in hot water in case it doesn't end up happening. But otherwise, everyone's really, really uncertain because the uncertainty it's really largely related to sort of macro factors that are hard to predict. You have potentially rising interest rate environments. You've got this inflation that we're unsure as to whether it's going to remain controlled. So there are factors out there that could slam the entire markets. 
and could drag down biotech with it, even if valuations already look very attractive. So even though people are saying that where valuations sit today, you would think you'd have a lot of people looking to start to get back into these names and that you might see some buying momentum. These macro factors make it really hard to, I think, for anyone to really call a bottom at this point. But looking at other topics here, one uh, that I know, Lauren, you've spent some time on in the past week, you've written pretty extensively about how successful Amgen was at rapidly reaching the market with their KRAS inhibitor Lumacross. Lauren, is that a strategy that they're looking to replicate with other pipeline programs? I think it is. When I spoke with Amgen's Ray Deshays last week, he called out specifically AMG 193, which is a phase one program targeting PRMT5. We don't hear too much about that target, but I, I think it's becoming an interesting synthetic lethality molecular target that there's a bit of competition in early clinical development. But he, he said this is a very high priority target for the company and for the industry. It's expressed in a lot of solid tumors. The problem with targeting it is that it's critical for healthy cells to survive too. So this is a place where Amgen has applied their induced proximity platform to identify a candidate. And the idea is that you want to block this target specifically when another protein, MTA, is also accumulating in the cell. 10 to 20% of cancer cells have a mutation that causes accumulation of this MTA protein. So the idea is if you can block PRMT5 only when MTA is present in high levels, then you've got a selective cancer therapy. He mentioned that this is something that they're hoping to push through quickly and apply the same kind of accelerated development strategy that they applied to KRAS and, and help them get out in front of this big race of KRAS inhibitors that's coming behind Lumacras. Is this induced proximity platform something that they're using with other? I mean, is this something that we'll can maybe expect to see them building out sort of a, a, I guess, a pipeline within a pipeline around this technology? I think so. Um, it's something that they've talked about for a couple of years. And it's the idea that if you bring two molecules close enough together to impact their downstream biology, you can have a different kind of therapeutic effect. So this kind of falls under a bigger umbrella of multi-specific therapeutic candidates that Amgen is creating its pipeline growth strategy around. So it's not a traditional bispecific antibody. It's the idea that you could take a small molecule, have it interacting with two different targets in a certain way to impact downstream biology. So I think it will be a focus. So Lauren, is Amgen the only company targeting this target in, with this technology in this way? They're not. There are a few other candidates in phase one, I think phase one, two, and a couple of them are based on the idea that you need to target PRMT5 in a way that selectively blocks it when MTA is present. I think the difference may be that Amgen has a platform for identifying small molecules with these kinds of activities in a systematic way. Great. And then I know, Lauren, that Amgen, you know, has their bi-specific platform. I know they've bet pretty heavily on that strategy. Any insights as to how well they're advancing that modality to build out their pipeline? Yeah. So Amgen was really out in front of the bi-specific space, the T-cell engager space with the Micromet deal over 10 years ago um, that brought Glenn Saito to the market in 2014 as the first T-cell engager. But in terms of the huge clinical pipeline of bi-specifics that's advancing behind Linsito, 
Amgen isn't one of the leaders. They don't have anything in phase three. They have one phase two T-cell engager. One of the reasons may be that Blincido was based on a technology that requires continuous infusion. A lot of the other bispecifics in development are, are administered in a more convenient way. And Amgen had been pushing forward a, a lot of bispecifics that were still based on the continuous infusion model. But there's been sort of a technological shift at the company as far as bispecifics go. I mentioned that they're sort of forming their whole growth strategy around this multi-specifics concept. They've abandoned the continuous infusion model and they're looking into new technologies. It's half-life extended bites. It's other T-cell engagers with different structures like heavy chain only bispecifics. It's antibody cytokine conjugates, you know, things that are bifunctional, but not necessarily bispecific antibodies. So the phase one pipeline, in my opinion, looks very interesting. And I, I think it will be really interesting to see what the company chooses to push forward with the accelerated strategy that we talked about and whether these next generation technologies in the bispecific space that, that they're looking into now can advance through the clinic more efficiently than, than the first generation. Thank you, Lorna. I know we'll be looking forward to reading that uh, this week on BioCentury. Also this week, you can look at our emerging company spotlight where we have two companies highlighted. One is Third Harmonic, the Atlas venture-backed company that brought in $155 million in financings to develop a C-kit inhibitor for allergy and inflammatory indications. And Splice Bio raised the largest ever Spanish Series A round at 50 million euros to deploy its splicing technique to deliver large genetic payloads via AAB vectors. All of this can be found on biocentury.com, where you'll also find Steve Usden will have a story on policymaking around the burden of rare diseases. Steve, did you want to say a few things about your coming story? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. I think it's really important. I spoke with the acting director of NCATS, NIH's Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, Joni Reuter, and also with Annie Kennedy from the Every Life Foundation. They have an article that came out in Health Affairs summarizing four different studies that have been done about the burden of rare diseases in the United States. And all of them converge around this idea that there's an enormous cost to rare diseases. The way that I put it is that the burden of rare diseases, it's a secret that's hiding in plain sight. People and policymakers have the false impression that because these diseases are rare, they affect very few people, that each one of them affects very few people, that rare diseases are kind of a marginal issue. But the, the fact is that 30 million Americans at least are affected by a rare disease. It's huge. And when you add up the direct and indirect costs of rare diseases in the United States, there are more than almost all any single common disease. The other things that they talk about in, in my interview are about policy changes that can be made to improve rare disease research. And one of the things that they point out, and it, it wouldn't be obvious, I think, in, unless you're really in the weeds on this like they are, is the need for more ICD codes. These are, these are codes that act kind of like hashtags that follow a patient from diagnosis to prescription, to billing, and um, they make it possible for policymakers to know what the prevalence of a rare disease is, which is really important if they're trying to estimate what the cost of, for example, covering prescription drugs for that disease are going to be. And they also make it 
much easier for patients to get appropriate diagnoses. One of the things that's the most difficult about rare diseases is getting an accurate diagnosis. I think that most patients with rare diseases go years and years, some of them decades, before they actually get an appropriate diagnosis. And for diseases for which there are therapies that can halt the progression of the disease or save lives, these delays in getting diagnoses are really problematic. Thank you, Steve. That sounds, that sounds like that'll be a really interesting read. Finally, coming up on the BioCentury show, we launched the BioCentury show last month. It's a 30-minute in-depth conversation with some of the most prominent leaders in life sciences. Our first two conversations are ready for viewing, discussions with Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, and John Euler, the CEO of China-based global biotech Beijing. And this week, we'll be posting Steve's conversation with Steve Pearson, founder and president of ICER. Steve, can you give us a sense of what to expect from that interview? Well, I'm not sure 100% because I haven't done the interview yet. I'm going to bring it in a couple of hours. But basically, look, I'm going to talk to him about his ideas about how you should figure out what a drug should cost, who should decide that, how they should do it. And honestly, a tremendous amount of controversy over the way that ICER makes these decisions or makes these analyses. Patient groups are often infuriated by the decisions that ICER makes. Of course, companies often don't agree with them. On the other hand, there are some companies that have taken a, what I call a, if you can't beat them, join them approach and are working closely with ICER to come up with assessments, pricing assessments that they can live with, and then agreements with insurers, with payers, that if the companies price their drugs in line with what ICER believes are fair prices, that the payers won't put barriers like prior authorization or high co-pays and things like that, that make it more difficult for patients to access those drugs. And I'm going to bring up a lot of the, the um, concerns that people in the biopharm industry and in the patient community have brought up about ICER and see what he says about it. Very cool. Looking forward to it. Well, thanks for joining our show this week. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.